grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. I hope everybody's having a good week back at work, but... Uh, it's getting there. You guys will have more time off coming up for New Year's. So, uh, yeah, as the holiday season grind, grinds slowly down. See, I'm still decking it out till January 2nd, and then everything gets put away. Anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, which means we can get to you in whatever location you're at. It may take a bit, you know, because California is a big state, but we can get out to you. We also have branches in, well, affiliates, rather, in Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Hawaii. So if you have any problems in those areas, send me an email. You can do it, and we'll get it, and I'll get the information out to whoever needs to be contacted. If you're watching from Facebook tonight, please be sure, and, and if you like what you see, please be sure to hit that follow button and uh, just keep joining us on these things. If you're watching from YouTube tonight, see, I did it right on right there. There's a little ghost in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen, and you click on that, and that'll subscribe you to our videos, if, especially if you liked our stuff. Uh, we have more than 460 videos over there, varying topics, including, like, tonight's topic. But as a journalist, I like to change it up, so I think there's a little something over there for everybody. Tonight's guest I'm really excited about. Um, I heard him do an interview with another channel, and he has the most perfect recall of what happened to him when he was abducted as anyone I have ever heard. And this is outside of being hypnotized or anything like that, you know, to be regressed. He, his, his recall is perfect. His story is incredible. And I'm very lucky to have him come on. I'm very excited to have him come on. Um, uh, his name is Tony Rodriguez. And you guys might have heard of him. And if you haven't, you'll know all about him. He's got a real cool book out and it tells all about what happened to him. This man spent 20 years, well, I'll let him give you the details, but he spent 20 years on other planets training and working with alien beings. But anyway, I'm going to bring him on, let him tell his story, because he knows far better than I do, obviously. So without further ado, here we go. Hello. Can you Hello, sir. How are you? Charlotte, hi. I'm good. good I am tonight. so excited to have you on. Thank you. Tell me about you, sir. Um, so to start, I guess uh, I'm just a normal guy. I'm like 50 years old. I live in Michigan. I grew up here. And um, I was taken when I was 10 years old. I, um, whatever, I went to school with a kid that said he was, his dad was an Illuminati. What's your dad do? We didn't get along. And, mm -hmm. uh he pointed me out to his dad, who was a judge at the science fair. This is 1982. And uh, the next night, uh, the following day, the, the night of, um, I had an alien abduction. I was abducted. And they turns out they took me for a period of 20 years. And I was a slave in several black programs, the deep space program, and several breakaway groups inside our solar system. And then... Uh, age regressed as a, uh, as per the information of William Tompkins mm -hmm. and uh, put back the next day. So I was taken on a Thursday and 
for 20 years and then age regressed or however the tech they used mm -hmm. and I woke up Friday morning, a different person, but uh, a kid back in 1982. And it wasn't until uh, May of 2015 that I saw the Randy Kramer uh, interviews with ExoPolitics where he explained, I, I thought that with the memories that I had at the time that I was taken several times and I just didn't remember being taken because I had memories of being, you know, an adult in space programs in deep space and working, uh, living on a place called Ceres Colony, on uh, uh, the Ceres planetoid in between Mars and the asteroid belt in our solar system had, um, you know, a civilization living inside of it in giant caverns and smaller caverns. And uh, I had those memories, but it just, I thought that I was taken several times or I, I didn't know what to think, to be honest. They weren't like dreams. They were like memories. And when I heard it explained that you can go for 20 years right. and they put you back, and I went, oh, my God, that's what happened. And so, Now, how, because, I mean, that would entail some type of time travel, wouldn't it? That's right. So, and what I remember is that um, with the ability to travel into deep space uh, to make basically a, and I hate the word portal or wormhole or uh, mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it, stargate. But it basically, it's like an Einstein-Rosen bridge. That principle of physics is mm -hmm. what they exploited. And with that ability, according to power output of the individual ship, you could go very far in space or forward and backward in time, which had rules to it. They had laws about it. But we did, we did manipulate time travel, and um, that is very possible. So it was something that is possible. And, and when you think about it, you think about the ramifications of time travel Mm -hmm. then it would justify the security uh, and the secrecy around the programs that have access to that. When did you start remembering, you know, things about what happened? Was it right Re away? Yeah. Well, pretty soon afterwards, I, re I always remembered the original, the first 15 or 20 minutes of the abduction uh, mm -hmm. within months, within a couple months after I got back. But when I was 10, I always remembered the gray in my room and uh, shorter reptiles coming from the foot of my bed and carrying me out of my bed. So I always remembered that my whole life. And as a result, I was always searching for, you know, to explain it. I was always reading like religious texts and <laughs> combing the inquirer and other anywhere I could find, try to find the, and nothing ever really hit home until, uh, like I said, when I saw the Randy Kramer interviews and, uh, that I thought, oh my God, that's what happened to me. And once I accepted it, once it made sense, and I thought they didn't, they didn't take me several times. They took me once for twenty years, and I went, oh my God. And then the memories kind of came back, and it was coincidentally uh, about ten days after I had an MRI scan of my head. So somebody named Michael Ralph, if I'm saying his name right, Rife from the Mars records in uh, I think it was the year two thousand, said the same thing that he had an MRI scan. And then shortly thereafter, remembered service on Mars and got memories back of being on Mars. The same thing, the 20 year program with age regression. So that I don't know if that's the reason why I got the memories back or if it's a coincidence. But I always mention it because it was uh, the timeliness of it was was on par, par for, for that. So I did remember a lot of things. I remember the first six or seven years or so living on Earth, uh, being shuffled from black program to black program and. The reason that I speak about it publicly is because things that I remembered in those years on Earth checked out. 
So there are places that I've never been in my life that I can prove. I have witnesses my whole entire life. There's a, there's a continuous stream of witnesses that, you know, ever since I was born when I was a little kid till adulthood that can vouch for me and say that I'd never really visited Seattle or Peru. Mm -hmm. And, but during this time I was in Seattle and Peru for a period of years. So I knew my way around quite well. And I did in 2016 go to the area, to the house in Peru that I, or excuse me, the house in near Seattle that I lived in during that time, during the 20 years. Hmm. And it was exactly like I remember it. And I called out certain things prior to being there. And then there was a, a place in Inyokern, Inyokern, California, um, where we were in the very beginning, the first eight or nine months of the 20 years. And somebody, uh, you, you might know, uh, heard of somebody named Brad Olson, who's uh, mm -hmm. an author of the Eso Beyond Esoteric and the Esoteric series. He's been on um, Ancient Aliens a few times. Brad was passing by there and went to Inyokern, and I was talking to him. He, he said, I'm going to walk up. We, we did a live, like a, a, a video call, mm -hmm. and uh, he was walking up the driveway, and I was explaining what he was going to see around the corner and, you know, the the features, the, what the bridge looked like, what the rocks were like. And um, it was just how I described it. So he was, uh, he's a form of evidence for me. So um, there have been a lot of things that have checked out and I'm working on a, like a web article that I have all those plate, all of the evidence, the supporting evidence of my testimony. I'm working on a web article that I could just give people the link and say, here you go, because these are very extraordinary and nowadays contested things. Mm -hmm. Uh, people are contesting and saying, you know, yeah, I stole my memories, I stole copyright or whatever. Uh, so it's very contested. It makes perfect sense that people would contest it. But um, I have evidence behind what I remember, and it's what I remember. So, When you talk about the first time you were abducted, you're not the first person I've heard that has said that the greys are working with the reptiles, you know, with the reptilians. Can, can you give me some details about the first time they took you and what you saw? Yeah, the whole episode went on for quite a while. So we lived in an old farmhouse um, back off the road. It was a hundred-year-old house, and uh, we had the old phone ringing, and there were lights outside, bright lights, like shining down from above, mm -hmm. and and you could feel like static electricity, and it kept buzzing. It would come and go, and the phone would ring. There would something that would come with lights, and strangely, nobody woke up. So my mom was always somebody that when the phone rang in the middle of the night would get up and answer it. You never knew if somebody needed help or was stranded. So she was very good about answering the phone and she didn't. And uh, it was almost like we were being suppressed in some way of not being, and they were testing us and the lights would come and go. And there was a, a ball of light that came in and um, flew in my room and then flew back out the door and down the, the hallway. You could hear it. Um, and then it went to pitch black and I fell back to sleep and I woke up with a face were standing right over me and it was a gray and i thought i thought uh my dad was pulling a joke on me because he was somebody that did he liked my dad did a lot of practical jokes and i said dad take off the mask you're not funny and i reached up and touched it and it was cold and very porous and wet like a damp and i i went to scream and it did something and paralyzed me ah and then i saw from the foot of my bed my eyes could move but i couldn't and uh from the foot of my bed i saw three i believe um shorter reptiles they had hoods and um they had like a jumpsuit on and they were shorter they were three or four feet tall stocky and they came from around the edge of my the end of my bed and picked me up out of bed 
and carried me to where they went. And there was a flash of light and I woke up in a laboratory in a, um, like a medical setting in a very dark room. And, uh, they had, they performed some tests. They did, they took tissue samples from me. It was a little hurt a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then I had to sit there and wait and there was telepathic communication going on. They were talking to me telepathically and, uh, their exact words were, we want to borrow your consciousness. And uh, I said, what, what do you mean by that? And then when they explained it for 20 years, I said, no, I can't do that. I'll be away from my mom and dad. My, my sister will grow up without me. I, I, you know, I can't be a God for my family that long. And they said that I would be back the next day and explained it and said that I was very lucky that this was happening to me, that it was an opportunity to, to add 20 more years to my life. And it was a blessing. And uh, I thought it was first contact. I thought that the next morning I was going to wake up and they'd be on the news that all these ETs were here and it was real. And, uh, that's what I thought was happening. And so I agreed. And they did a procedure on me, uh, a medical procedure, which uh, the way I remember it uh, also is contested. Uh, but uh, I woke up in Inyokern and went through a like a uh, trauma-based mind control program and then was shipped off to Seattle and then to Peru and then back to Seattle and eventually sold off. Their words were sold off to the military where I went into space to the back of the moon and was trained and then uh, shipped to Mars and was on a short, short stint there in a program, a combat program on Mars that was canceled and then retrained, take, given an aptitude test and retrained for ship maintenance and then shipped off to the series colony corporation, which was a breakaway group from Europe, Europeans, the Deutsch culture, basically the Germans from world war two and, um, lived there for about 12 years, better part of a decade, better than a decade. I lived there and I did ship maintenance for the first eight or nine years. And then did I was promoted and was retrained to be a cargo engineer on a ship that did interstellar trade missions from the series colony with um, ETs all over the place. We went to other galaxies. They had natural natural wormholes that they would exploit and go to other other galaxies. And we would do trade, we were trading goods for tech and tech for tech. They were trying to advance technology. That was what they were after. When you talk about being like either on, you know at the back of the moon or Mars, how did you breathe? It was indoors. Uh, they were everything was in was inside. So a lot everybody's always like the series has a um series has an atmosphere how'd you breathe outside we were inside it was underground it was subterranean they were giant caverns and buildings uh it was just you know the back of the moon and on mars was just like being inside of a building like a large uh you think about the inside of a big resort like a vegas hotel it was just like that um you know walking around through hallways and larger gathering you know atrium type areas where you went but um they were everything was subterranean so do you think that that first, and I was just thinking when, when you were talking about that first examination, when they took you aboard, that, that it kind of reminded me of a physical examination like, like the military does, you know, just to see if you're fit to, to serve. Well, they told me that um, they had to test, there was a genetic limit. So they had to see if I had the genetics for the technology and that um, I barely passed. So that was their words. Like you have the genetics just barely. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they could use me for, for their program, for their technology. So um, I apparently just one 20 year tour. Hmm. Um, 
But yeah, they did a standard medical test. They scanned me with other things. It wasn't until later on after Seattle and when I was put on the the moon, the stop on the moon, that they actually gave me a great deal of surgeries and uh, modifications. So I believe that we had imp I had implants put in and uh, I had things that uh, modified me and got me ready for the service in space. Now, let's talk about the aliens. Go back to that now. Are there certain grades that, that, that perform certain duties as opposed to others? Or how does how's the hierarchy work? That was absolutely how I remembered it. Um, so on Mars, when I went to the school there, um, they were a taller, like a skinny, uh, more of a white than a gray, but the same kind of um, shape of the body and um, taller with uh, telepathic communication. They seem to be in charge like, um, like professors. And on uh, the moon, well, and I don't know, the first time when I was taken, I don't know where I was physically, oh. mm -hmm. um, but there were shorter, darker gray ones there that seemed to be very, um, you know, emotionless. And then there were taller ones that popped in. There was one, they so they were doing a surgery on me when they did a procedure on me and I was um, in pain. And it put its hand on me and said, and I heard the thought, I heard love, love, love. In, you know, in voice. And I felt great. The pain went away and I felt happy and was very cooperative. And it lasted five or 10 minutes and then wore off and the pain came back. But um, it seemed to be a more advanced thing. And then it had, to, it was telling the other ones, the reptiles and the other ones that it couldn't stay. It had a like a flight to catch. Like I've got to be on a flight. I have somewhere to be. So I'm not going to be here for you to help you with it. Like it was a, it was just like going through, um, you know, a hospital. Right. Where, the, where the doctor popped in and said, nope, I, I've got to be, I've got a three o'clock. I got to get out of here. And it was the same kind of conversation. And I remember being bummed. I wanted them to do that again because it was a great feeling. You know, mm -hmm. the pain went away. Mm -hmm. um, I think that was in the very beginning. But um, yeah, there were several. There were several throughout the entire time that I was up there. Um, there were many different types of humanoids that we would call grays like the same way you know um the same way that you might look at asian cultures and not be able to tell them apart whereas asian cultures can look at each other and tell each other apart it's that you know like the same way that you might mistake um a cultural or a uh, a racial uh whatever built mm -hmm. so i hope i'm i hope i'm saying this right i don't want to make sure. anybody mad uh sure. please it's my last the last thing I would ever want to do would be to be insensitive or whatever, insult anybody. But what I'm saying is uh, if you're not familiar with other cultures, you might be mistaken and look at one um, and say, you know, they're, they're, um, these people are Vietnamese when they're really from Thailand, you might mistake right. that or right. Filipinos. So it's the same thing with the, with the grays. It was the same thing that they, there are different cultures and they have similar looks to them and aesthetics. Mm -hmm. So it was like that up there. So a series colony, there were the occasional gray walking around. Not as many, mostly people there. There were reptilians that walked around there, and there were taller races that were looked more like people than not. Mm -hmm. But they had like a you know the the um, elongated skull, and they were taller with bigger eyes and and different different proportions of where their elbows are to ours. You know, like. Like we have a proportion, most people have a proportion of where your elbow is versus mm -hmm. your shoulder down to your wrist. There, there where the elbow was closer to the shoulder and longer to the wrist kind of thing. There were humanoids like that that walked around. Interesting. 
and did you see in, in, in any of the insect kind? So during the sorry, I'm just a little laggy, but during the service on yeah. Mars, there were indigenous insects that we were um, supposedly fighting. And I did get um, access. Uh, sorry, we did get engaged, and I did have contact in a combat situation with insectoids, and it was terrifying. And they were until the one that I, there was a mantid that interacted with me, and it was very intelligent. It was very advanced mentally. This is all fascinating to me because I, I have read, you know, seen interviews with Randy. And that's why I was so excited to see you out there because I really wanted to talk to somebody about this because I've been trying to get Randy on for a long time, you know, to talk with him. Um, when they, like, put you, as you say, into slavery, how, how did they treat How were you treated? I was treated like a piece of equipment. I was um, clothed well, fed well, and cleaned. You know, we had to shower twice a day. Mm -hmm. um, but I had no rights. I had no say in what my, um, you know, I had no choice in my situation. And so I was literally in slavery. Um, it was labor. Uh, towards the end, when I was cargo engineer, I did get, they did give me money. Um, but it was like, you know, the equivalent of like 25, 20 to 25 bucks a week. Uh, mm -hmm. So it wasn't much. It was enough to get a tick of a train ticket to go out and explore a little bit. Um, I guess it was kind of like a, a table scrap. Um, but I was a slave. I was slave labor. And there were thousands of other guys that were doing slave labor. There were guys that were mining out pockets for them to build into. And um, so it was slave labor. And I was treated very poorly, to, be, to put it bluntly. And it was humiliating um, to be out in public and have the identification. I wore a slave. I wore a collar that could shock me. I wore a shock collar. And we were told that it could kill you, but mm -hmm. we never heard of anybody that died from it. And uh, it told my where my whereabouts and everything. Uh, but it was humiliating. And like you, when you talk about how, you know they fed you, what, what what kind of things did they feed you? Uh, well, you were you had to eat. You couldn't pass. You couldn't skip a meal, or you'd go to the doctor. So you had to eat uh, your three meals, something for breakfast and. I was lucky that I, towards the end that I was in, uh, I would go to the com the meeting, the mission briefings, and they had real food there, or at least better food, you know, like muffins and croissants and stuff. Okay. Okay. Um, but then for lunch, there was, uh, you know, artificial food that was replicated, something like a microwave. You put the bowl in it and you'd hit a button and it would spit food out. And it was always very slimy. And... Um, not great super super hot but not it was like run of the mill very very bland but it had everything you needed in it to to uh stay alive and then at the end of the day there was back at the barracks where i stayed there was a cafeteria there was a uh like a buffet like a cafeteria and that again that food wasn't impressive at all either it was like a buffet where you walked up and got served one serving and they weren't big big portions like um but because they they had all the nutrition worked out on it so yeah I uh, really didn't go hungry very much, very often. I really was never that hungry. Mm -hmm. Now, when you talk about the work you did, and you, you mentioned um, guys doing mining, you know, like digging out stuff. What what does that mean exactly? They had mines. So there were guys that rode trains. We took trains everywhere on Ceres Colony. There are trains that connected everything. And when um, 
in the morning, most of the guys would get on the train and go to the mines. And they had several places that they were mining and they would go in and um, break up in microgravity. They would use ultrasonic uh, things. That, the series that was made out of a really chalky substance, like the makeup of the planetoid was like chalk. Like you could dig into it there with, with your hands. It wasn't, it's not rocky. It was chalky. And so they would, they had ultrasonic things that would break up the stuff and then they would run vacuums because it would be in a microgravity. And then they would install gravity plating, grav mat flooring, like artificial gravity flooring that was powered that had, that created good gravity. They would install the tiles out and then do it again. And they had big uh, plastic walls that they would erect behind just in case they hit water, um, pockets of water. Sometimes they hit giant pockets of water while they were mining and there were people that were lost. But that's pretty much what they were doing and what they were clearing out big areas so that they could put new buildings. Their space was at a premium. There was never enough. There was never enough space to put things. Mm -hmm. They had it. Um, there was a gigantic hangar, hangar bays. I didn't see everywhere you know, inside the planet, but mm -hmm. we were always, we were always having a hard time with where we stored our cargo. Fascinating. Um, I can't, that's all I can say is fascinating. Cause you're, I mean, your story is incredible. Um, how many others were there with you here? I mean, and they were human, right? Just, just, just like you or, or were they different like species? There were two other species that lived there. Um, there was a taller species that had the elongated skulls and the bigger eyes and they tended to do technical jobs. Uh, I'm really have a hard time remembering names of places and things. And okay. the best I can think is they were like Altruin or Altrian, mm -hmm. Altru something like that is what they were called. And then there was another species there that were like more like nine feet tall. They had really wide hips. They looked, they looked strange and they had hair as well, but a smaller, they had really small beady eyes. And they tended to be like managers of all the, you know, the restaurants or the, the stores. There would always be one of them working there as the management. So I don't know if that was a contractual thing that they had with the with the government of Ceres Colony, which was military ran. Mm -hmm. um, but those were there and the rest was was people. And, and the number that I was told was like two hundred and twenty five thousand people total. Wow. So about a quarter million people. We're living inside Ceres Colony when I was there in the late 90s. Wow. Now, do you think, and this is like the million-dollar question, that the U.S. government knew about this? Absolutely. We were picking up cargo and dropping off cargo to Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean the whole time. We ran missions. Sometimes we went once or twice a week. Sometimes we didn't go for a month or two. But we would go to Diego Garcia in the middle of the night and drop off cargo and that was classified and we would pick up cargo and there were two uh, United States, um, you know, I don't know if they were Air Force or Navy, but they were military guys that were, you know, United States personnel, military personnel. One of them uh, was logistics and the other one we had had the clipboard that we had to sign for. So they were absolutely involved and there's a level of the government that knew uh, about our missions there. Wow. It's funny no, you... that. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, it's funny that um, early on in my testimony in uh, 2015, mm -hmm. I talked about Diego Garcia, and I just remembered it, uh, luckily, because of the joke. We always told a joke when we went there that, you know, it was, um, what did we say? We were, uh, you know, uh, we were going there to pick up 
uh, Russian cargo or Chinese cargo off a Russian ship at an American airbase with an Italian first name and a Spanish second name in the Indian Ocean for the Germans. And, you know, we would always keep adding and make different versions of that, but we made that joke. So that was why I always remembered it. But uh, in 2015, with researchers, I went on record about it. But since then, um, it's become somewhere that many other whistleblowers have said that they've had, uh, you know, access to space through Diego Garcia. And in fact, after the Space Force was formed, the Space Force took it over and it's it's a Space Force asset now. It is literally, it did literally overnight become a spaceport. Uh, so they are launching assets into space there. It has that classification. And, uh, but it was something that I just remembered the name of it. And when I was searching for places that I remembered, when I first got my memories back, I was trying to, you know, make sense of it all to myself. Mm -hmm. um, it was a place I found. And it turns out that it has all this other history that I was unaware of that's come to light since then. Did you ever get uh, the opportunity? Because, like you say, you, you towards the end you were doing cargo stuff. Did you ever get to fly with them to the U.S. to, to drop the stuff off or anything like that? Yeah, the ship I was on was like a thousand feet long, um, and I was worked on it full time. I went. We we went to four. We went to different worlds, and we would do five, six, seven stops a day. Sometimes five. It was a typical day. Was five destinations. And they would be other planets and other star systems and the Earth and mm -hmm. Jupiter or near Jupiter at one of the bases and then go back to Ceres colony. That was a t it was a day for us. So mm -hmm. there were times when I would stand and look outside the cargo bay in another planet. And there were times I set foot on another planet. We had something called, we called it the spider. It was the, the lift that went down. It was in the front of the ship and we'd ride it down. And it was rated for four people, but it wobbled a lot, no matter what. Whenever you had four guys on it, it wobbled. So we only did three of us at a time. Mm -hmm. But there were many. I set foot on the tarmac at the apron in um, in Diego Garcia. I set foot there. Uh, so I rode the spider down onto the tarmac, and it was hot in the middle of the night, super hot. And um, but yeah, we we did so many stops that it became routine that you don't even I don't even think about it. And they were all numbered, so. The other thing is we didn't really call planets or star systems by their name that per mm -hmm. se we wouldn't say the, you know aldebaran for instance we they had a numbers and so we were always it was just this stop this day and oh we went to that one last month i remember this one and mm -hmm. it was a number system everything had an address like that that was in the in the computer um that we cataloged that we picked up you know we picked up 100 boxes from this place and that's how it went. So, but we did many stops. It was, we were very busy and it was very easy to get very far. So that's according to what I remember versus what we see in like Star Trek or Star Wars, right. you know, where it takes a long time to get to the next, it wasn't like that. We could go to four or five other star systems and be back for lunch. Um, in fact, we traveled time. We would come back right before we left, right at the same time we left so that we'd have a full day when we got back to base. So we had a full day. We'd go to school for a few hours and you could rest. They had like a 20 hour day on series colony. Like the clock was set, not a 20, 24 hour day, but like a 20 hour day. So because of that, we would, we would get those extra four hours easily. And then, you know, um, but that's, uh, the, I was in flight crew. So we had that, we had that luxury. Okay. Now my other question is how did they pilot these things? Do you know? Yeah, well, there was a whole crew of people. I mean, the bridge, like when, you, okay, so 
this is something that is similar to a lot of the sci-fi is you know the captain sitting up on a pedestal in his chair and then a bunch of people at their own individual stations with a giant screen in front of them all that shows all the information was exactly what it was like but it was darker in there they kept it dark and there were people that had like a virtual reality set like a goggles and then they had a touch screen in front of them that you know standing next to them you couldn't see what was on the screen but they could through their goggles see and they could reach out and touch their screen and manipulate that's how they entered data and there were like 20 people um there were quite a few it wasn't just it wasn't just 10 or a dozen there were like it was a packed room where the bridge crew was and one of them was the pilot one was navigation and, and so on but they had quite a bit there was a media officer there was a radio officer there was there were you know trade there was a trade negotiation officer the captain sat kind of like on a couple steps up and then the two the corvette captain and the next one under him i forget what they called him sat looking sideways kind of at the captain where mm -hmm. he was facing forward and they were facing inward towards him right behind just behind him and then the rest of the crew was down on the main floor and they each had their own workstation and a lot of them had the vr looking headset that they had on when you talk about the training that you received when you were first sent over to train what were they harsh with you were, were, were they patient with you in training you or was it like like you say a slave thing where do it or else or or, or how it work well i had been programmed to be obedient in the first place so that was the first step was the trauma-based mind control in inyokarn was it programmed me to be um whatever complacent and accept instruction but um the training was basically being plugged into a computer and watching videos that gave you a choice like a like a um a decision it would give you information and then it would have repeat it in a certain way and then it would ask give you a decision to make mm -hmm. and according to the decision you made it would progress or give you a different version of it and it would repeat until you got it right and uh, it just kept playing and it that was that was the training that was the bulk of the training for there were videos it was in video form okay um as you stayed here i mean because, because obviously your body stayed did did your body stay at home i mean essentially if your mom would have looked into the bedroom on the night you were abducted would she have seen you in there no i believe i was gone for a short time so for okay. me i was taken out of my room Okay. And the next thing after it was all completed, they flew me back at the series colony at the end of my time, which we were aware that we were going back. Mm -hmm. And uh, they flew me. I flew on a disc on an old antiquated saucer and flew towards the moon to the base on the back of the moon. And they put me through a, and it took a long time. It was weeks after that before the, it was done. But the thing that I remember was I woke up in my bed the next morning. I woke up the next morning, I went to school, it was a Friday, and um, I was totally, totally confused. I had the sensation of being gone for 20 years. I had mm -hmm. that that feeling of being gone. I went down and hugged my mom. I can't believe, my, I'm so happy to see you. I was, I was um, happy to be back in my life. And like I sat down in my, later when I, I, I had to get up and, and run down and get ready for school. When I got home that day, I sat and I went through my pile of toys in my room and I didn't even recognize them. I said, it, it felt like I hadn't seen them in a, in a very long time, all my toys. I, and I quit playing with them all. Like I was bored 
I changed. I had a, I had a personality change. I was changed mm -hmm. from it. Mm -hmm. When you started to have the memories and stuff, how did your family react? Um, that's a really, really good question. Um, you know, they, they know that I'm not a person that makes things up. So, uh, my wife at the time didn't even believe in ETs. You know, if there was ETs, they'd be in the Bible kind of thing. That was her take on it. So, but she knew, she knew what kind of person I was. And I said, look, I remember all these things. I mean, the very first, I mean, this is like the, the same week that I got the breakthrough that all memories came. Mm -hmm. I said, look, I remember all these things. I don't know what to do with this, but I need you to help me up, make sense of this. And I put our phones in the house and we, I made a bonfire outside. We'd sit out by the fire. And I said, look, prove me wrong, please. You know, if this isn't, you know, ask me questions. I want you to cross-examine me. I told her the whole story. I said, I want you to cross-examine me and prove me wrong. Mm -hmm. So because I was, I was like, what do I do with all this? It was just so much. It was, you know, one day I had no memory, you know, vague mm -hmm. suspicions of being abducted. And then the next day I had 20 years of memories, like literally like the entire book that I wrote, I had those memories. And I, I, I knew that there's no way I could um, just live with it in silence without talking to somebody about it. You know what I mean? Like it was just too much. It was just too much. And I thought of, I would, it really scared me to think of, you know, on my deathbed trying to explain it. Right. I knew that, you know, waiting to the last minute to tell people about it wasn't going to work. So I did that with her. Um, and she said, look, I, I don't have, you know, after three, three nights of that, we did the same thing. We had bonfire and we sat out just her and I by the fire and talked about it all. And, uh, by the third night, she said, look, I got nothing. I said, please come on cross. I wanted her to give me a question that was gonna, you know, prove it wrong that there was something, you know, I don't know. I really, I really don't have a ton of other possibilities other than it just being real. Mm -hmm. And you know what I'm saying? Like, what else right. could it be kind of right. thing? And I, I'm the first person that, like that, I, you know, it's very inconvenient to tell this story to people. It's very inconvenient. And to be the one, I thought there were going to be a lot more people like me that came forward. And there actually have been. There are a lot of people, but they don't choose to speak about it publicly. It's That's definitely not for everybody. There's a huge price to pay by speaking about it publicly. You, you put yourself in the line of fire. I, you know, I've caught in a lot of criticism, even recently. Mm -hmm. and um but it is what it is I, you know these are this is what i remember and i've shared it and it's not up to me to you know fight you if you don't believe me right right um but i just put it in the record maybe someday it'll come in handy uh maybe someday it won't but i, I was happy to get the book done mm -hmm. and uh that way because it tells the whole story in a in a linear fashion mm -hmm. and um you know, just it just puts it in one place. It's different than you know. I had a lot of it. I did over three hundred and some interviews on YouTube over the. You know, this has been seven years now right. that I've been talking about this. So it's like sometimes I do three, four, five a week, mm -hmm. and half of them got scrubbed in two in twenty twenty. And so I thought, oh boy, I better get the book done so mm -hmm. that at least there's something. You know, the book is out. It's sold enough copies to where, you know, even if they took it down, like there's enough accounts of it out there. Mm -hmm. 
Do you think that, like, like you say, you were hoping there'd be more people that would come forward after experiencing this? Do you think it's a case that maybe their their memories haven't been jogged yet? Hmm. Oh, excuse me. Um, I think that I am a anomaly in many ways. That I have the the full uh, from the beginning to the end. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people were exposed to many different versions of technology. Like I was a low, low grade version of it. Mm-hmm. So uh, they just took it for granted that, that, you know, and I was early on, I think in 1980 was like when a lot of the funding for the black programs got, they got their funding. So it was brand new. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point early on, on one of the bases, like I believe on the moon, I could smell wet paint. Like they were still finished doing the finishing touches. They were building it. They just got done building it. Hmm. But um, I think a lot of people are taken by many different versions and many different species with many different ways, versions of the technology. Mm-hmm. And I think there are thousands of people that have a great deal of memory and they just choose not to speak of it because mm-hmm. they have a, a life and a professional, you know, there've been people that have came forward and spoke about it that regretted it greatly. And, you know, lost their job, lost that, you know, it's costly to speak about this publicly. Like I have kids, my kids go to school and the other kids in their school see my YouTubes and my kids have been ridiculed at school. So I'm not belly aching about this, but I'm saying this is a consequence that I never intended uh, for my teenage uh, daughters to go to school and then get made fun of because their dad Mm-hmm. is on YouTube saying he was lived in space with aliens uh, in the past. So that's a reality of the situation. There's a lot of great reasons to not come forward. There's very few to come forward. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a lot for this uh, by, you know, and then on top of it, other whistleblowers are very hawkish. So the community itself is hard on you. So it's not, a, it's not just the audience, the skeptics or the crazy in the audience that you worry about. It's the other people, the researchers and the other whistleblowers that have been treating each other badly. And mm-hmm. that's where I've got most of my abuse, to be honest. So um, there are a lot of people. There are thousands of people that have contacted me over the seven years that have said, look, I remember something like that. And we've had conversation. Help me out. What do you think of this? What do you think of that? Mm-hmm. And then they go on about their way, but they have no uh, ambition to speak about it. Right. So I'm not the only one by any means. Right. Now, when you were when you were in the program, and I know you, I know you said that you guys stayed in barracks, were you allowed to talk amongst yourselves about what they were doing to you? Oh yeah, yep. So on Ceres Colony, the living condition there it was kind of like I, I describe it like a prison, like if you think about what a prison looks like mm-hmm. on the inside, mm-hmm. but without doors. Like imagine a prison, but all the barred doors not mm-hmm. there, like the room wide open. That's what it was like. So we had a little uh, five by 10. It was probably a little wider than that. You know, five five feet wide by 10 feet maybe with a cot and a little, uh, like a little desk in it. And then there was a bathroom, uh, like a separate bathroom. But you had to go to your room when they turned the lights out and you had to stay there. You'd get in trouble. And then in the morning, the alarm, all the lights came on, alarm went off and everybody had to get up and we went, there was a routine. You had to shower and brush your teeth and get inspect. You had, there was a, like an inspection. Your hair, when your hair got long, they'd send you to get your hair cut. Um, and then they had clothes that were hanging. You had a hook with your number on it, and that was your clothes for the day. You'd get out of the shower, go to your hook, and get dressed, and then go to your train. And different trains would come. Like I had to, t- I took the train to the hangar, 
And then that one would go and another train would come and they'd load up with guys going to the mines or wherever you, they were assigned. We had our own uh, train system. And it was Groundhog Day in that regard. So, But we could get around. They, their policy was I didn't have to go back to bed when I was done working or done with my duties. I could have went, walked into town and took a train and done anything I wanted. You would not get in trouble until you didn't show up for your post the next morning. So I could go out all night and party all night. As long as I showed up and did my job, they didn't care. We talked, we were friends with each other and we talked amongst, and we could walk around and we had freedom of movement. Hmm. The other thing is, as you tell your story and, and the routine that you had, I mean, obviously the United States was involved with this because I mean, this is stuff that the United States does even with their military. Right. Well, maybe all militaries. I, I don't know. I'm not yeah. that versed, but right. yeah. Um, we, we got up, there was a buzzer. You would get up, you would go in one room and there was a long, there was a long row of hooks along the wall that had numbers. Mm -hmm. And you would go to your hook and you had like a, you had like a pajama, like uh, night things to wear while you were sleeping. Mm -hmm. And you would take that off naked and hang it on your hook. And then you would walk into the shower. We'd wait in line, hundreds of guys. And we'd go and shower and you had like, you had like 20 seconds or something. There was a, you pulled it. It was a subway tile. It was a shower and you go and shower. And then you walked over and you had a disposable toothbrush and you brush your teeth. Then you walked in another room, a separate room that had hooks. And that was your clothes for the day were hanging on it. So you'd go to your number and then you'd get dressed and you walked out into the cafeteria area where you could get breakfast. There was food. And then off to the right, you went through security and you got your collar installed. You had to pass through security door. And they would put your collar on you. And then past that door was the train state, was the train stop. And you would just wait for your train. Yeah, see? It's just, it has all the, you know, I mean, like you say, there could be their military train too. But, you know, as far as treatment of, of you guys being humans, it sounds a lot like they were, that they had gotten information from military people on our end. Yeah, well, just it was most efficient. It was just an efficient yeah. way. And then, so then when you came, there were many times because I was flight that I came back at off times. Like I didn't come back at the same time that all the guys, the guys from the mines came back at the same time. And so I was, I would come back. I usually would come back and I'd be by myself or there'd only be a few, you know, one, one load of guys from the hangar, mm -hmm. which was nice to be honest. Um. But I would leave. I would go walk around and, and or if I found that when I went back early and I went to my room, they would come and get me and put me to work. I'd end up doing laundry or mopping the floor or whatever. They'd come and make you work if you were just doing nothing. So I didn't want to come back until mm -hmm. late at night. And there were times when I came back, you know, in the middle of the night where I had to get up only a couple hours later. And they said, look, you got two minutes, the light. And I would look down the hallway. It was dark. and They would have the light on in my room only. And I had two minutes to get to my room and get in bed. The light would shut off. And if I was moving around after the light was off, they could see you. And then I would get in trouble. They were like, you better get in bed. And so that's kind of how it was. It was like being a, being in a prison, but with, with the ability to come and go. And we talked about the greys. What about the reptilians? What, what, what was their function in all this? There were, um, several different kinds. So, um, I remember that one was a pilot, like on that disc that I flew back that I said that one of the pilots was a reptilian and uh, he was, you know, abrasive. So he was getting translated. The guy they had the ability to speak with the other, there was a co-pilot that was human. 
-hmm. and he was they were talking through each other and he was you know he was mean uh he was an abrasive person um i spent a great deal of time with the smaller one that was my he was like my chaperone and the end when it, so after i was imagine this i was taken at 10 years old and then i grew up to be about 30 years old and then mm -hmm. put back when they completed the procedure and I was back to my 10 year old body, I had no memory of where I was, where I had been. I had the memories back of mom and dad and, you know, Michigan. Mm -hmm. There was a chaperone. He was a reptilian that was a chaperone. He was like security. He was strong. So I guess the, <clears throat> I guess the shorter stocky build built ETs were from heavy gravity planets and the taller skinny ones are from lower gravity planets. That makes sense. And uh, so because he was stronger from a heavy, he was he was security. And I actually got to speak to him and hang out with him for, you know, a matter of hours. Mm -hmm. And he was a normal person. It was like he was in the equivalent of, you know, his, you know, early to mid 20s in his life. He was he said he had a, a wife and kids and he went back to his planet at the end of the day when he was done working mm -hmm. and he had a sense of humor. He he. He was talking about uh, Bruce Lee movies and he did impersonations of things and uh, he made fun of us, you know, on earth, your music sucks. And um, he was a normal person. It was like hanging out. It was like, I was a 10 year old kid hanging out with a 20 year old guy. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I don't want to say I looked up to him or idolized him or anything, but it was like that kind of dynamic. It was like hanging out with a young adult. It was fun. We had a little bit of fun. And so, I see them as people. I, I think that's my takeaway from all of that is that ETs, even no matter what their biological makeup is, mm -hmm. you know, at a certain level, they're people just like us. There are advanced ETs that we were aware of. They're highly advanced mentally um, that are much different than us. But for the most part, the ones we did business with were just other people. They, they look different, uh, mm -hmm. a different, different look than us. Uh, by and large, a lot of the reptilians were very independent people you know and, and by that i mean that they didn't have a lot of pleasantries mm -hmm. or any kind of like uh uh etiquette you know we have a hey good morning you know i'm in the midwest right. so you pass somebody you're like hey good morning you know i guess california and seattle is or you know doesn't have the etiquette that the midwest does so mm -hmm. i kind of missed it when i was out west but you know out here everybody says good morning and how you doing and please and thank you there's an etiquette and the reptilians don't have that they just mind their own business until you know until there's a there there's a reason to communicate. Mm -hmm. Now, when you were taken, you said that they did genetic tests on you to see if you were fit to be there. Mm -hmm. And do you think? I mean, with all the abductions that go on, that people are aware of, do you think there there's a lot more like you that are being taken than than we really realize? Oh, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I haven't done it in a while, but uh, a couple years ago, I kind of did the math on the manpower it took. They took me, and from what I can guess, the the, the crew of four that took me um, worked on me for about two to four hours. So if you take a giant building the size of a mall and paint it with rooms with four people in it, which isn't hard to do, um, they could take in two or three a day. Mm -hmm. They could take thousands 10 20 000 a week mm -hmm. you know it, it wouldn't be hard to scale up to that so i think that that's kind of um you know probably realistic 
that something like 10 or 20,000 people a week can go through the same system that I went through and be used for labor, uh, either be it slave labor, skilled labor, labor, or, um, you know, advanced uh, purposes, but can be used for basically free labor for 20 years and then put back. And so when those numbers, you know, 200 quarter million a year, and then you look back over a hundred years, 25, 30 million people more than that, you know, um, it's not hard to get really big staggering numbers. And the thing is, they probably don't do it to everybody because there's a genetic requirement. Mm-hmm. And uh, that way there's deniability. Most people are like, yeah, whatever. That's never happened to me. So, you know, you're crazy. They, you know, they don't, they don't, uh, it's easy to discount if you've never had it happen to you. Um, I will say that uh, I was something I was just thinking about along those lines about people that I've talked to um, that, oh, that's, that's the other thing is that people that get taken, it runs in the family. I was going to say that. So because the genetics, once they get you and once you pass the test for the genetics, now you're in a file and your children are more likely to have that genetic marker that makes you, uh, makes them eligible to be put through that, whatever, whatever version of technology they're using you for. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I don't really know why. I don't know if it's the process of, of the aging going back or time travel or living in another, you know, living out there. I don't know why they need your genetics. I, I really, I don't know, right. but um, it's a big deal. There's a genetic, there's a genetic, um, you know, wall that mm-hmm. a lot of people don't have the genetics to go. And that's why Don, everybody goes. So they're looking for a certain genetics. Well, that was my next thought about your father. I mean, did, did, did your father ever talk to you about, you know, strange dreams that he had or anything like that? Well, the next morning, my dad acted really weird. And I, I'm pretty sure that he went as well. And I don't think that he, um, I don't think that he really remembered it other other than and him and i never really got along the same ever again mm-hmm. and um, you know right now i don't talk to my father so um he was he became very bitter after that and uh you know their marriage didn't last longer after that happened either the, but three years later they divorced they were changed my, i was changed and my father was changed greatly mm-hmm. um after that day very interesting um what do you say to someone who thinks that this might have happened to him Write it all down. Write down every little nook and cranny thing that you can remember in a bullet point. Make a timeline. Pay attention to when it happened. You know, if you remember something oddball, like I think this happened, and you know, try to figure out how old you felt you were. Mm-hmm. And or if something happened, you know, I was in my house and once once when I was doing this and we, there, I saw a craft outside, you know, that's your typical thing, or there was a gray in my yard. Figure out when it was and write it all down into a timeline form. And that's the best way to make sense of it. And they have somewhere to put new memories as they come. Uh, I would say do that. Was there ever a time when you were living over there that you got mouthy with anybody you know, about doing something? Like you say, you, 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 it was ingrained in you to, to do what they wanted, right? So there was. wasn't any time that, that you would say, I don't think that's going to go well or anything like I did, that. I did. I did. I got demoted. There was an um, incident at the end where we were... Um, we were in a dispute over a trade deal that went wrong and I disobeyed orders and uh, all the, I thought everybody was, 
Mm-hmm. Um, everybody on the crew was saying, look, we're not going to do this. These people don't deserve this. We're not going to do this. And, uh, so I, and I spoke up at the, at the mission briefing. I said, look, everybody on the, everybody I've spoke to says they don't want to participate. There's going to be a mm-hmm. mutiny. And, uh, they were like, don't worry about that. And I it turned out I was the only one myself. And I think, uh, one or two other people kind of protested, but I disobeyed a direct order and I got disciplined very harshly for it. And it was like my last six months up there, I had been greatly demoted and I ended up working two jobs at once and not getting any sleep for my last bit of day. I was completely exhausted when they, uh, when they put me back. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Now, when you knew that they were going to bring you back to earth, you know, that you were going to return to earth, did they tell you directly or did they just take you back to the moon and then start processing you? And then you found out later on. Yeah, no, we knew. Um, so it was a custom that people that were finishing up their 20 years. So not everybody was in a tour. Okay. And um, it was a custom that the last few days that we would, you know, that somebody was there that you would take over their work for them. Mm-hmm. And they would have an easy day or at least their last day or at least the last half of the last day. And there'd be a little send off. Everybody would wait and you know, give hugs and everything at the at the exit of the ship. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get that. They came and got me midday and one guy took me because I had been demoted and I, I was basically dishonorably, um, you know, discharged from mm-hmm. the series colony corp. Uh, but I remember the walk. Uh, there was an officer that took me and he, he kind of gave me a pep talk. Like he scolded me, um, said I had no business doing what I did. It wasn't up to me. And, you know, I deserved what I got. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but they just came, he just came one day, you know, the ship was in when we got back from a mission and he grabbed me and he was waiting for me at the exit, come with me and walked me to a part of the hangar bay that I'd never been before. It was smaller ships. Mm-hmm. They all had a catwalk, like a, like a, like a bridge thing that went out to, to get into it. And he walked me there to my ship and he said, go back and uh, live your life. Don't, don't try to remember any of this. He said, find yourself a nice German girl and settle down. <laughs> And uh, he said, don't worry about remembering any of this. Just go back to your life and be thankful that it's over. He said, you're, you know, basically sent me off and, you know, very, it was very disrespectful. I didn't, yeah. it was, I didn't get that send off day. I got worked until the last minute. Right. And a, and a few, a few of my friends came up and said goodbye, but there was no announcement. There was no, you know, I didn't get to say goodbye to mm-hmm. all, everybody. And it was sad. I was sad for that. And I think that kind of fueled me to not remember, to not forget. I wanted to remember the whole time, the whole trip back. I paced back and forth. saying, I'm not going to forget this. I'm not going to forget. I'm not going to forget. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why I do remember. The reason why I laughed is that was disrespectful. Go find yourself a German, a German girl and settle down and blah, blah. That's it's exactly like, what he said. Like exactly. your father would say when he's calling you, you know? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Like quit messing around and you need to get, get a job kid, you know, like yeah. it was kind of, he, he gave me, um, you know, he wasn't me. It wasn't a scolding, right. But he was giving me, he gave me the riot. He read me the riot act, the whole walk. And it was a long walk. You know, it was mm-hmm. 20 minutes of one place to the next and 20, 30 minute walk. And he basically read me the, read me the, the riot act the whole way. That was my last, that was my last, you know, half hour on series colony. Right. Right. And I went in and there were other kids. So in the disc, there was a room upstairs. It was grimy. It was old. It was dirty inside the disc. Um, 
there was carpet it was sticky sticky carpet up there and it was a round room with like a like, like a round couch and um i don't know maybe a dozen other people they were going back too they were all being we were all being some of them were connecting they weren't from series colony going back mm-hmm. they had connected their flight dropped them off there and then they waited and then rode this flight back to the moon to get processed and put back and um I don't know. It was sad. It was a sad, it was, it was emotionally, it was a very, very tough thing emotionally for me at that time. I was in love. I had a girlfriend that I didn't get to say goodbye to. I, there was a lot that I, um, there was a lot that I was so, I was upset about that whole time, you know, going back. So the question I have before, because I have two questions left for you. And then one of them is that, if you had the opportunity to go back and settle on, say, some planet that that that, that you visited, you know, for shipping and everything, would there be one that that, that you would want to go to? I honestly, there's a space station that I um, always wanted to go to. With that, um, most of the time, I would stay at my post, and mm-hmm. um, I would stay at my post and not look out the window because you know I was trying to get a high score, a productivity score. There was a space station that's in between our, like way out in space from ours. It's nearby. It's like in between our star and the next star. It's close, relatively, mm-hmm. but it's still pretty far away. It's like, you know, a couple light years away. Mm-hmm. And everybody raved about it. I never got, to, we went there, and but I had to stay at my post. They made us stay at our post. And the people that went aboard and visited it raved about it. Said it was the most amazing thing they'd ever seen. It was like a highly advanced you know, um, space station. And mm-hmm. I would like to check that out. I'd like to go back to series colony. I, and be a free man mm-hmm. and just kind of walk through it one day just to process it the same way that I went to Seattle. It was therapy to go back and, and realize that what I remembered was real. Mm-hmm. Um, when I got my memories back, I was really freaked out. I'm still, I'm freaked out by it, by the way. Mm-hmm. But, uh, when I went to Seattle and I realized how accurate my memories were, I knew, my memories were accurate there. I knew my way around. I knew a lot. Um, and so I'd like to go see what that's like, like on series colony, but I'd like to go and be a free man and, sure. you know, as a, as a, as a guest or something, but sure, um, sure. yeah, I don't really, there wasn't anywhere else that I really fell in love with. Like I said, we went to so many, it was a blur. It wasn't, it was a job. I was doing a job, right? you know, right, you know right. what I mean? Like, um, yeah. It was like being a taxi driver and asking him where he'd like to go. They like, don't. I don't give a shit where I'm at. You know. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, do you um, counsel people that that this has happened to? Sure. A lot of people. So a lot of people see interviews and they go, "Oh man, uh, you know, it's one or two things ring a bell," and so they want to talk to me. And after a while, it got so hard to keep up with. I started charging money for it because I was just making people mad that uh you know it's just i do this a lot in my spare time Mm -hmm. like christmas i this last week i've taken off and not done a lot of interviews and uh i've got seven six or seven consultations but you know waiting that i've got to schedule and get them they and uh but i get a you know two or three a week probably Mm -hmm. and there are people that ask me they're like they want to tell me their story most most important thing the most important thing is that most people that get these memories not not only like a like a 20 year tour like a career return like the 20 years thing like what i went through 
not only that, but just any kind of contact or any kind of weirdness. Mm -hmm. Most of the people have nobody to talk to in their personal life. Mm -hmm. Really, your spouse or your family, they don't want to hear it. Shut up with that. You're going to embarrass me. I'm close to you. You know, that's really kind of what I got. And uh, so, but they want to talk to somebody that understands. Mm-hmm. And they're willing to they're willing to do what it takes because it's it means a lot. That's the best thing. You know, you're not going to go to a counselor. I realized early on I wasn't going to get counseling. They were just going to give me some medication. You know, right. like there was going to be no quality counseling. And I wanted to. I really needed someone to talk to. And so just listening. And I write down, I take notes, and I make it into a timeline. When did, wait, when did that happen? Where did that happen? And I look mm-hmm. for other things that other people have told me. I've done it a few thousand times. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, and I've got a few hundred that I started writing down from recently. So I always go back and look for look for things that, you know, when somebody tells you that they were in a room and there was a ball there and then somebody else that doesn't know that person. And they tell me I was in a room. There was a ball. It was silver. Like, how did you know that? Right. right. And so I'm looking for that. I'm always looking for that kind of like overlap. I call it overlap. Mm-hmm. And uh, that proves them. But uh, I always look for that, try to make sense of it. I always give people the straight answer to but like, man, I can't help you that, you know, that doesn't, I'm sorry, that doesn't make any sense to me. You might try this person. You might try mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, try to get hypnosis or something. Or I tell people exactly the truth. And I say, man, I've heard that before. And it was somebody that this happened to. And it's, this is what it sounds like. So, and I'm not a doctor, um, right. but that's what I do. Most people that want a consultation just want somebody that listens, mm-hmm. that isn't going to bite their head off. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, you know, there's a lot of value to that. And it's very important when you're trying to put together things that you know exist that society is telling you doesn't exist. And Absolutely. everybody that's had contact, society is telling everybody to laugh at them and that that's impossible. But when you see it with your own two eyes, you get taken. These are horrible things happen. Sometimes good things. Some Most of the time, bad things happen. Mm-hmm. And you know this happened to you and you're trying to explain you're left damaged, wounded. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's a very big deal to to try to find to find somebody that kind of understands what it felt like. And so people reach out to me because they see me on interviews and do that. Absolutely. Tony, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thanks I, for having I, me. I'm just it was a great talk. Over. Yeah, I'm bowled over by it all. This is fantastic. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank it's an you. incredible experience, and I want people to buy your book. I want people to get your book so they can read even more about it. Because um, You can link to all my stuff, the email me, and there's free interviews, and there's my Patreon channel that I have, mm-hmm. and links to my book. is Everything is on TonyRodriggs.com. Rodriggs with an S at the end. TonyRodriggs.com. You can okay. find me there, um, and it's, just got, it's got all my info there. Fair enough. Well, thank you so much and have a great New Year's. And I just, I just so appreciate it so much. You too. I think 2023 is going to be a really big year for us all. So I'm really, I'm really optimistic and I uh, got my fingers crossed that we have a wonderful year for everybody. So thanks for having me. All right, Tony. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, guys, that is an incredible story. And, and um, I, I've read parts of the book. He goes into even more detail in the book and it's something, it's a book you need to get. You know, I don't usually push books here, but it, it's something, his story, um, you know. And like I said earlier, I've been trying to get Randy on the show as well. And he's been, diff- you know, he's, he's been difficult to get. So I was really excited when I when I heard Tony's story. All right, shifting gears tomorrow. I will be on at 12.30 p.m. Pacific for an early show tomorrow with Donna Marks. Donna Marks is a psychologist. And we're going to be talking about conquering addiction. And she's got some really neat, neat unique ways on how to help you conquer and how to help people conquer addiction. Why do people get addicted to things? And it doesn't necessarily have to be narcotics or anything like that. It could be any kind of addiction. 
So we're going to be talking about that tomorrow at 12.30 p.m. Pacific. All right. Uh, you guys were watching from Facebook. If you like what you see tonight, please hit that uh, like button and hit that follow button because I'm always looking for followers. Uh, you can find you can also find me on Instagram at ghostygal. It's all lowercase. I'm looking for followers over there as well. Same thing with, uh, excuse me, YouTube. Let's see if I can hit the button again. Oop, right there. Click on that button and the subscribe button and come up. And, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to build up our subscriptions. And uh, so far, we're doing really well with that. And I, I appreciate each and every one of you. But if you subscribe, what do you get? You get me. No, you get the show. You get four, You get more than 460 videos to look through because I'm a journalist. I don't like just sticking primarily. Here, I'm going to light myself up here. Hang on. Holiday is ending, but I'm going to light up. All right, see? Um, I don't like sticking primarily. <laughs> here, I'm talking serious, and I got this thing going off on my head. Um, I don't like sticking primarily to one subject, a paranormal, paranormal subject. Like tomorrow, we're going to be talking about addictions. I'm a journalist. That's what I do. In fact, when I worked uh, physically in a newspaper, I was a general assignment reporter, but I was also a health reporter, crime court reporter. I, I, countered, I, I, I handled county issues, like water issues and things like that. So I got around, and I also was a sports editor in college, so I've done a little bit of everything. So that's why if you look at the different shows that I've produced here on California Haunts Radio, you'll see that there's a little bit, there's a little mixture of everything. So, you know, check it out. I think you'll find something you like. And, and you know, if you subscribe, you'll get notified. I'm also on the community page, and so I'll, I'll, I'll put out polls every once in a while to see what you, the listener, want to hear. And things like that. So check it out. Check it out. We're also over on TikTok under California Haunts All Over Case. You can check us out on TikTok and follow over TikTok. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming tonight. I want to thank everybody listening uh, tonight. Or who's going to be listening once I get the RSS put up over at Apple and, and uh, iHeartRadio and all those places. Because I really appreciate you guys. You know, the numbers are going up for the downloads for these shows. And I'm really excited about that. And it's all because of you guys. It's also because you're sharing. You're sharing the show. You're, you're going out and telling your friends about it. You're telling your family about it. You know, one of my favorite things is to say, hey, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you didn't like the show, share it with five of your enemies. We just want to get the word out. That's, that's all we're trying to do for this show. And uh, it's like the little show that could. Every month, every month more, more and more people are listening. More and more people are watching. So I'm real excited about that. And I want to thank each and every one of you. All right. That being said, I'll give you Tony's contact information, where to get his book and everything. And then I will leave you and see you tomorrow at uh, 12.30 p.m. Pacific. So here we go. Website, TonyRodriguez.com. And the book is um, Sears Co Colony Cavalier. And you can, like he says, you can get information on that at his website. Or you can buy it at Amazon. But he's also got other information on how to contact him on the website and his Patreon. Okay, guys. I'll see you tomorrow, 12.30 p.m. Pacific with Donna Marks. <laughs>